Welcome to Liberty Unlocked. I'm your host, Don Watkins. No intro this week, as my brain is completely fried. Uh, And besides, I think we have a really incredible interview ahead. I talked to somebody named Ezra Drake, who is a person I've interacted with online a few times in the past. But the other week, we had a call just to discuss uh, persuasion and communication. And I had so much fun during that call and thought that Ezra had so many interesting things to say that I said, all right, you got to get on the podcast. So uh, let's get to the show. First thing, though, if you want to support us, the best thing you can do is sign up for my newsletter and free Persuasion Bootcamp email course at donswriting.com. You can support the show financially by visiting libertyunlocked.com or clicking the link in the show notes. Every dollar goes to improving the show and helping us reach as many people as possible. Now on in the conversation with Ezra Drake. Uh, yeah, so thanks for doing this, Ezra. We we had a really interesting conversation, I guess a week or two now, and covered a lot of ground. Um, I mean, you have a lot of knowledge about about marketing, about how to communicate with different audiences. and uh, But you also have a really fascinating story of how you even got involved with ideas pertaining to liberty. So uh, you can tell it better than I can. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, this is actually the second time I'm starting this. So I think I'll actually start a little bit differently. So I'm kind of glad we had this little retake thing. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 this is a very professionally produced podcast and I did not record the very beginning. So Ezra, Ezra has given us up, which is perfect because as I say, our goal is to be honest, not pretend perfect. Yeah, so I very professionally am going to do my second take. <laughs> Love it. Um, <clears throat> My first introduction to Ayn Rand's ideas specifically, and actually she was the first philosopher who I ever read, like anybody who had any kind of formal philosophy other than, um, you know, some, I'd never read anybody who actually had a system of ideas, you know, so she was my first encounter with somebody who actually kind of had a position on all the major, all the fundamental things. Um, And uh, how that came about is... um, I actually found Peacock, uh, Leonard Peacock's introduction to objectivism is like an hour long uh, kind of intro thing on YouTube, you know, and I watched that and I was like, what? This guy has the answer to everything. And, it, and everything he said just makes so much sense. And some of the Q&A was like, how old are you? Uh, really got it. Um, I think it was 2012 or 13. So I must have been 25. Something like that. Um, so I, you know, I watched this thing and at the end he said, go buy my book, uh, Opar, you know, Objectivism, Philosophy of Ayn Rand. So I went and bought that book and actually Opar was my introduction to objectivism specifically, but philosophy in general. So it was so like, just, to me, it was like this. Just so everybody understands this, if you haven't read the book, it's an incredible book. It's, and I read it, I read it when I was 15. Um, so it's, it's not like a wow. you know, uh, unapproachable tome, but it is 600 pages, maybe more of very abstract philosophy covering, you know, some, a lot of technical stuff. It's like, if you were going to tell somebody, this is where to begin, that is not the book that you would start them with. And Leonard would say so yeah. himself, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I definitely knew when I was reading it, it was not the right place to begin but I was really, really hungry and I was highly motivated and I have been, you know, um, 
in my background, uh, I kind of have been used to reading things that are very dense and boring and just kind of getting through it, you know? Um, but I pushed myself through it and I realized, you know, while I was reading it, that everything he was saying was true. And especially when I got to like the virtues section. So I, I'll give a little bit of my own background for a second. I was raised um, Orthodox Christian, which is a really um, kind of really fundamentalist. It makes the Catholics look like, look like a bunch of hippies, really. I mean, they are some hardcore people. Um, <clears throat> and when I uh, was growing up, I was really struggling to get grounded and to really find the kinds of ideas that I needed to lead my life. And I had a lot of mental health problems. So I was struggling really hard to just kind of stay alive basically and really survive. So what attracted me so much to objectivism was, um, I think is, is sort of unique to me is, is that it just had survival value for me that it really right. helped me stop being so anxious and confused about the world and to actually start to trust myself and to start to trust my mind that reality is not this insane, bizarre place that you'll never be able to really understand. And it's not, you know, it's not some chaos. Um, and that's what really motivated me. So when I got to the section about uh, the virtues, you know, I read them and I, I cried because I realized I have none of these things. <laughs> and, but I could see so plainly that I need all of them. And it was, it was just, it was this, it was this, uh, this sense of a burden off my shoulders that there really were answers. Um, and, you know, so it was a lot of relief, but it was also a lot of, um, you know, I still had really poor uh, uh, cognitive reasoning abilities and mental health at the time. So obviously, and I was beating myself up saying, oh, this suffering in my life has all been for nothing. I could have just done this the whole time. And of course, now I look back and I say, I'm not Ayn Rand. I'm not a genius. I need philosophers to guide me through life. And so that kind of started me on my journey of saying, well, if I'm not a genius and I couldn't have come out of my environment and produced objectivism, then what about everybody else? What do I expect everybody else to do? And well, that and is what got me on that, the track. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I think is worth highlighting because my story is, a, is quite different than yours, but uh, it's similar in this in that it's very atypical like mm. we, were, we, we just became directly interested in very abstract ideas and philosophy as such. We were willing to plow through very difficult material where you had to do the work at many, in many cases to, to think about how does this connect to my life? You know, how would I actually use this? A lot of it is like, particularly the virtue stuff, you can see, okay, this means I should do X, but you don't get into the virtues until hundreds of pages into the book after you've covered, right. you know, metaphysics, like, how do we form concepts that you know, what is man yeah yeah so there's there's a lot of work that you put in on the front end and that's going to be important because one of the things i find is that people uh we can learn too little from our own experience and one of the premises of this podcast is that we need to delve into how we were convinced in order to be better at convincing others but we can also take away too much which is to expect oh everyone's just going to like put in the work and see the value instantly the way that we might have, uh, whether it's objectives yeah. or even just liberty uh, more broadly. And I think one of the things that was so surprising to me about your story was that you, like, you have a very different attitude towards when it comes to convincing others. Like, it's not, well, they should just do what I did and, and read Opar. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, I, that's a, 
I, I actually feel kind of blessed in a sense that I came to these ideas and into this career path from the way that I did because I have no interest in arguing with somebody and winning. I didn't read OPAR because I wanted to win arguments. And I'm not in the business that I'm in now because I want people to think like me, you know? I'm, you know, I adopted these ideas because I needed them. I need, I, they have survival value to me. And now they, you know, beyond survival, they have real flourishing value. And, and I've done things in my life I'd never thought I'd be able to do. Um, and I approach communication in a similar way. The object of communication, uh, and this is kind of a radical approach, um, and uh, it, might, it might seem that it's contrary to the idea of persuasion, uh, but it's, it's not really. Um, but the idea of communication for me is a trade is to make someone else better off and they'll make me better off. And I don't have to change their mind in order to do that. They don't have to come away from some, something saying you're right. And I don't have to come away from the conversation saying they know that I'm right. <laughs> right. Um, that's to me, that's just not what it's about at all. So well, persuasion well, is, then is crucial because. Say, say a little bit more about what that trade is then in your mind. If it's not, you know, I, my victory comes from the value of having won over a pawn in my scheme to take over the planet with my ideas. Yeah. Like what is the, what is the value you're seeking out of those kinds of interactions? That's a great question. There's two answers to that. One of them is the, the personal side, you know, you, you gain friendships and stuff, but from the professional side, um, it's that, you get to think more clearly about the issues that you care about. And that's how it goes both ways. Is as, a, as a communicator, I want people to think more clearly about the things that they're really passionate about and they care about. So they get rid of the sense of chaos in their lives. So they can get rid of some, some doubt or sometimes people have a, a, a hidden motivations that are conflicted about them about, you know, sometimes they believe things for reasons that are very emotional and they, they can't understand that until they have a conversation with somebody else who approaches things differently. And they can say, oh man, I, you know, I think that that conclusion is ridiculous because in my mind, there's this other emotional thing connected to it. So if I were to believe that in my own mind, I would have to see myself as a monster, for example. But they can see clearly I'm not a monster. And so if I hold some idea that challenges them and I kind of talk to them a little bit about, here's how I came to this and here's how it makes sense to me, then they can, it enables them to get out of their own kind of cognitive thinking traps that stop them from being able to think clearly about the things that they really, that, that are really important to them. Um, so for me, the trade is about, um, it's all about ex exchanging knowledge and, and sharpening your thinking process so that you can come to the best conclusions. And I just don't, I, I, I trust that reason really works. And I trust that there's one reality. So it's not scary to me if someone believes something else as long as we're embracing a similar method. I don't, I don't feel, for example, I work with people who are, uh, who are, who, who hold like super different ideas than I do. You know, I'm a radical capitalist and I work with some anarchists and stuff like that. And I view them as my allies, as my intellectual allies in, in the fight for, for, uh, for freedom and prosperity because they use a similar method. And that's, what's really crucial to me is that um, we, we come together and we share ideas so that we can think more clearly. Does that make sense? Yeah, it'd be interesting to delve into the, the, the method side of that 
vis-a-vis anarchy, but I, I actually, there's a different direction I want to go in, um, which is, so the, what was I going to say? Oh, what I, what I was going to say was, I think that's a really healthy attitude towards ideas. And it's one that I've, I've cultivated, uh, let's say in for most of my life, but I definitely like have to admit, I started out more on the polemical side. Like, you know, when Mm -hmm. I was 14 or 15, I like, I was excited to have ideas to guide my life, but really like so much of my motivations, particularly for the particular issues I would study. Like once I became interested in philosophy, then it's where am I pouring my 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 time into well how do i answer these arguments that i find tricky Mm -hmm. and how do i convince others and so like you know for me opar was like oh cool now i have a powerful debating guide which is i mean it's not a good orientation to have uh for many reasons i mean the one thing it did do is it got me to like study topics that i'm glad i know about now that i would have Mm -hmm. not been interested in in the past um but no, I, what eventually like I realized was to even understand philosophy thoroughly, so much of it comes from trying to apply it. And you're not really in the practice of trying to apply it if you're focused on sort of where, you know, how am I answering critics and how am I going to win over mm. people for a cause? And certainly if, if we're talking about the objectivist philosophy, that's a completely bad orientation. Like that is, that it's really a second-handed orientation. So it's kind of funny where you have a second-handed orientation in order to promote a philosophy that says be first-handed yeah. and independent and don't, don't yep. wrap your mind and your life around other people. Um, so I wanted to then kind of delve into this idea. So I, my favorite part of our conversation, and we've, we've kind of, I think, gotten uh, here a little bit, is this idea of being when you're engaged in communication um being kind of obsessed with your audience and really being focused on your audience and so i want to um i like this has been a point that a lot of objectivists have made and a lot of the liberty movement has made over the years and so it shouldn't sound like a foreign idea be focused on the audience but i think it's widely misunderstood or not people don't get how big a commitment that is and how different it is from what we usually do. So I'm going to describe what I call, uh, I don't have a sexy name for it yet, but it's, it's like pseudo connection to the audience. And then mm-hmm. maybe you can share sort of what you take to be a focus on the audience. And so, you know, what I see is that people who think that they're being connected to the audience, they'll kind of abstractly appeal to their values. Like you need philosophy because it's a guide to life that will help you achieve happiness in your career and your romance. Um, so they'll kind of just state the logical connection between what they're trying to promote, or you need liberty because it will make you more prosperous and happy. Um, and then it's, they'll also, you know, when it comes to explaining that they'll define their terms. So they'll try to, you know, say like, look by philosophy, I mean this by virtue, I mean that. And they'll, they'll even give examples sometimes, although often not enough, but sometimes Mm. they'll give examples. But the way I think about it is that what they're not doing is tracking the thoughts and values of the audience. So like in my mind, when I'm writing something, I have a really clear picture of where is the audience coming to this article from? Where are they emotionally? What are their, what are their goals? Their goals for sitting down and reading this, not even just some abstract remote goals. Like, you know, why are they even here? Where are they mentally? And then as I'm writing the piece, I have a sense of, 
all right, this is the question that would be on their mind here. This is the objection that would occur to them. This is the kind of like value that would really be meaningful to them there. And that's, it's super hard to achieve, but in my view, that's a better way to think about what it really means to be focused on the audience. But feel free then to disagree or whatever, but how, how do you think about this issue? Well, um, there's, a, there's a lot there. So I'll try to address as, as much as I can. I, I have a bunch of kind of, thoughts and kind of and actually real challenges about a lot of that stuff because I, um, that is the framework that I, um, that I hear most from people who want to teach about communication, right? Like things like you have to add motivation to your piece in order to get your audience interested in it. You know, that to me is a bizarre way of thinking. It's like, imagine if you went on a dating site and you said, you know, you want, you want to date and you say, I have to make myself more interesting to people so that they'll, tolerate me for a first date or something i don't know well there's a whole um, industry of pickup artists that <laughs> teach exactly that yes, so it's not teach people to be more interesting right and that's there's something there's something to that but it's pseudo like you said it's like a pseudo connection and it seems to me what the motivation there is is to get people to sit through your argument long enough by making it seem like they might get some kind of payoff that's relevant to them so people who do that, I think generally are, um, in some way they're balancing this idea that my ideas are super boring and no one would just listen to them straight out. So I have to somehow try to make it seem relevant so that I can find the line between their tolerance of the crap that they'll plow through in order to get to goal. Right. So we're basically saying we have all this dirt for you to get through and we're going to put a nugget at the bottom. That is, that is such a, perfectly accurate description of so much that I see and by good people too. I mean, this is an easy error yes, to fall into. it's not a moral issue. Right, yeah. right. Um, but I, I like that just resonates with me a thousand percent. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other way to look at it is you, instead of thinking of your primary focus is to communicate and persuade and your secondary focus is to connect, your primary focus should be to connect. How to connect to your, to your audience through communication is the way I look at it, not how to communicate with your audience by connecting with them. You see what the difference there? Your, well, what do you mean by connection? Emotion, connection means appealing, uh, and this is, again, I don't even like to use the, I don't like to use the, the, the thinking about appealing to someone's values because that means you're making it up. You just you know, making up something to get them to be interested so that they'll listen to the crap that you have to tell them that they're not really interested in. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's, I don't even have a lot of really great language for talking about it, but the idea about, around connection is that you relate to your audience on some fundamental issue, um, not necessarily fundamental, but you relate on some, on some level that you two connect with and that you have values to share with each other. It's, um, uh, it's like, it's basically a trade, you know, there's, there's a principle from, from, uh, that I learned about in objectivism, but it's an economic, uh, principle as well. Uh, it's really a principle of human action. And that is that human relationships, all of them, all kinds of human relationships are about trade. And so in order to, uh, have a, a profitable relationship with anyone in any form is to trade value for value, make them better off by interacting with you and make you better off by interacting with them. And that's really what we're trying to do when it comes to communication. We know what we want to say 
generally speaking. We know that we want to be heard, but what we're trying to do is make our message into something that people will tolerate hearing. And in order to achieve huge success, like I'll give you a good, a good example of something that I think of. People go to movies in mass. They go to the movie theaters and they sit down and they watch these stories on the screen and they're super motivated and they pay like $10 for popcorn just to make the experience just a little bit better. And that to me is like, wow, these people are gonna get into their cars, drive away, go into the movie theater where it's dark and you can't use your phone and they're gonna sit through these, these movies. And I can tell these people are clearly super motivated to do this. Right. And the reason is because the movies are made for the sheer pleasure of watching movies. They're not, generally speaking, they're not made to propagate some message. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, could, could you imagine if, if you went to go see movies and half of them are, uh, it, it's as if, you know, they made Atlas Shrugged into a movie, but 80% of it was speeches and the other 20% was like hardcore action, you know, mm -hmm. like super action bits broken up by long speeches. Like that is, that's basically how movies would be if, if they were made by the intellectual movement today. It'd be like a bunch of little pieces of things to kind of keep you in your seat and then they'd measure how long you get bored and ready to leave before they cut off their speeches. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, it's a good analogy um, in it be precisely because like they're going there to be entertained. But if you, if you think about how is it that we process a story, it's that what we're doing is we're stepping in, you know, it, it'll often be put as empathizing with the character, but what you're really doing is you're stepping into their life for two hours or whatever it is. And you're seeing the yeah. world and experiencing the world through their eyes. And, and so it, I, I, like the connection angle, I think like comes through, right? When you're, when you're interacting with somebody, it's not exactly that you're doing that, but that it's, it's not this kind of, there's these ideas over here that you and I are focused on. It's that we're focused on each other as people who look at the world through a certain set of eyes. And I want to see and understand how you're seeing the world and, and share how I'm doing it. And this seems very related to the, a point that I don't know if I've made it on this podcast, but I, I think is profoundly important, which is that I think that people are persuaded by, not by ideas, but by people who embody and express ideas. And that's why mm -hmm. an organization that doesn't have a, a person who's you know crystallizing the view, people don't connect with organizations. They're not persuaded by organizations per se, um, mm. you know, a persuader might work in an organization, but they're a distinct individual. So if you think about, you know, the most successful persuaders, it, like, uh, I mean, you can think of obvious ones that we've talked about in this podcast, like, you know, Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson, um, but even, or Ayn Rand for that matter, but even think about like in the business world, right? You know, Apple was connected to Steve Jobs in an important way because mm. he embodied the passion for the product. Like you shouldn't just be looking at this and going, this is very high powered. It's, this is awesome. This is like, it's, it, it, he modeled this kind of enthusiasm that then people connected with and then connected with the brand. And so mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, persuasion is so much about this and it doesn't mean that your ability to articulate the ideas in the right way is not important. It's super important. It's super important, but it's, it is, uh, it's intimately connected to a certain way of interacting with people that is not about us mutually staring off in the distance at ideas in the, in the abstract, but by connecting with us as people who are governing our lives through ideas. Yes, absolutely. 
So I want to talk about a couple of things there. Um, and it's great that you brought up Jobs because I view him as one of the most effective intellectuals ever. And yet most people never heard him talk much about anything abstract. I think maybe the most abstract thing he said for, meant for a wide audience is maybe at some Apple keynotes, he used to say Apple is the intersection of liberal arts and technology. That's perhaps the most abstract thing he ever said. But people would line up for days to go buy his products that reflected that integration and that abstract thought with extreme fidelity. You know, in, in his, in the products that they created there had extreme fidelity to this idea of the intersection of, of liberal arts and technology. And um, I, I think that that's the standard of, of how your audience, of what you want out of your audience. You want your audience to love engaging with your ideas, right? If, you're, if, if you are solving someone's problem, you usually don't have to persuade them of much. If, people, if someone's looking for a solution to their problem, for example, if I want to, um, I recently got a chameleon and I uh, was researching how do I care for this chameleon. I didn't feel like I was being persuaded about chameleon nutrition, right? They weren't mm -hmm. like, well, first we have to start out with the principles of nutrition and animal biology. No, like uh, they didn't have to teach me about all the nutrients and stuff. They just said, here's this little package of nutrients that's meant for your little guy. And you just put it on their crickets and, and you're going to go. I'm like, Oh, thank goodness. This is so easy. Right. And I think, uh, I think that's crucial because here's, here's really the fundamental point for me. Life is about values. I'm not living my life so that I can have integrity. I'm not going out there living out abstract ideas. I'm after things in life. I want good experiences. I want good relationships. I want to have fascinating uh, and intimate connections with people. I want to be around high caliber people who push me, right? Those are problems that I'm, that I'm solving in my life. Especially, you know, uh, uh, to, kind of to get a little bit vulnerable here, um, I struggled with, uh, you know, suicide and stuff for a long time. And, and when you're looking at the floor, thinking about killing yourself, you are, you don't fucking care about um, uh, convincing anybody of anything. And there's nothing anybody could say to you that can convince you to get out of your, unless they're like really skilled. Uh, generally speaking, there's most of the people can't say much to you to convince you of anything. You're just in your one track thinking about, um, you know, maybe that whatever you want to do in life is never going to work out, whatever. But it's never about when you're sitting there thinking that way, you're thinking about your values. The reason that you're, you're the way that you think becomes so convincing is because the things that are on the line are important to you. Right. And I find that um, whenever I'm pursuing my values, I'm not in the process of engaging in persuasion or not. And I'm not rejecting, I'm not testing ideas from an intellectual standpoint as I learn about the things that are crucial to me. Um, when I eventually did learn about um, uh, therapy and, 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 uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff like that, um, and then theories of self-esteem and stuff, where I actually had to start, you know, I, I learned about uh, philosophy a little bit before I got into, into the real kind of uh, therapeutic uh, concepts and stuff. And I had to evaluate a lot of that stuff. I had to look at different theories of self-esteem and figure out, well, which one of these is right and which one of these schools of therapy is right. So I did have to engage in those things a little bit. But for the most part, when I was reading those books, I wasn't 
I didn't feel like I was trying to be persuaded. I felt like someone was trying to help me and I was trying to figure out, is this the right solution for me or not? And I think that is the approach that we really want. Uh, that we, we want to look for people who are pursuing their values in life. And we want to help them get more out of, out of life. We want to, we want to get, the way I kind of phrase it is, help people get more of what they want and less of what they don't want. And I believe that ideas matter, that we are thinking beings with concepts. And in order to get what we want out of life, we have to think appropriately. We have to be able to think clearly about the world and what's going on in it so that we can, you know, make a path for ourselves. So kind of to bring this, bring this stuff around, Steve Jobs integrated that idea really, really well. He knew that everybody had a job to do and he could use abstract thinking to solve people's problems in an extremely elegant way. The reason he could do that is because he was able to think clearly. He was able to understand fundamental premises and he was able to make, you know, huge decisions. Should the iPhone have more than one button, for example? Um, should it have a stylus or not? You know, th those, he, was, he was able to think really, really clearly about those kinds of problems and lead his teams to figure those things out because he could think so abstractly. And I think that's where we want to get. Bringing this to liberty for a second, when I think about how do I convince somebody uh, um, of a uh, concept about, about liberty, I find that I'm not being helpful. When I, think, when I have that thought and I think, how do I convince this person? Usually I find that I'm going to stop looking at what they're after and I'm going to start looking at what I'm after and how I can play chess with them to get them to face a contradiction or something. Um, but people will face their contradictions if they're trying to get what they want willingly. You know, they'll say, oh man, I made this huge mistake. Let's say you have a relationship and it fails. You would, you would probably be much more likely as you're analyzing what went on to, to face yourself and say, oh man, I, I don't want to have another relationship that fails this way. So I'm gonna go ahead and look at my character. I'm gonna say, what was I missing? What did I do? What are the things that I was thinking that's really screwed this up? You're so much more likely to be receptive to facing your contradictions because you want to have something better than if someone were to tell you, let's say like a couple of days after the breakup, let's say one of, one of her friends comes to you and tells you, here's all the things that you did and here's why you're so jacked up. You're not going to be very respect, receptive to that, you know? So if my aim is to point out someone's contradict them, contradictions and make them face it and then see that they are wrong, um, that's really just not helpful. And and I really mean that. The goal is to be helpful. And if I'm trying to be helpful, it just doesn't help people to point out their contradictions. So if I'm in a conversation about liberty or if I'm, or if I'm helping my organization frame uh, their messaging about liberty, what I try to think about is why do you need it at all? Why do you need liberty at all? And that is so that you can live the kind of life that you want without having people screw with you. And then that starts me going down this path of, well, when do people experience problems in their life when they're screwed with, when they're interfered with? And that's when you start to connect to people's values. And you say, you want to build the home that you want, but you can't. You want to have the job that you want, but you can't. You want to send your child to education, but you can't. You want, um, to, you want to experiment and innovate in your small business, but you can't. That is when people start to open up and they start to be able to face contradictions in a way that they couldn't before. You say, well, we live in the kind of government where you have to participate and you have some say about what goes on in your business uh, other than whatever the government says. You really do. And there's a process for get, getting involved in that. You know, and that's, well, really me, the, that's really the way to, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I'm definitely sympathetic to a lot of that, but I think what you said later on is important. So um, 
like I think it's very powerful to reveal contradictions to people because that's like that's the whole method of change is we realize that like either I'm not being consistent, but what what basically the path I'm going on cannot lead to the results I want because there's something like I'm either acting at odds with myself or at odds with reality. And what I hear you say um, is like pointing out a contradiction doesn't work. But what I also heard you say, and I want to make sure people get this and correct me if this is not your saying, which is evoking, helping a person recognize that they have a contradiction, not pointing it out, but leading them to recognize it is that's the kind of powerful tool. And that happens in the context of showing them a conflict between what they want and whether it's the course of action they're on or the policies that they're endorsing, or at least that the country's endorsing. And this is, um, I, I did an episode with a psychologist, Gina Gorland, and this was a lot of what we talked about, which is this is what psychologists do, right? They don't say, hey, what you're doing now is, is, is harming what you say you want. It's, mm-hmm. They have a very artful method of helping you recognize that maybe the path that you're on is in contradiction to what you really want, or at least what you claim to want, or that you know, you, you're holding values that can't actually both be achieved. They're mutually exclusive. Um, yep. So, so I, I take that's what you're saying, not that we just basically have to take people as they come and, you know, something like that. Right. Yeah. So I, both of them are true. You have to take people as they come in terms of one thing, and that is that they are after the values that they're after and you can't change their values. You have to take their values for granted at a certain fundamental level, not all values, right? Because you can most certainly help people uh, stop pursuing some values that are that are contradictory or with, with themselves or with reality or maybe are destructive um, or maybe won't work out in the long term. So you can get people to change their values, but there's there's something I think about. It's like a um, there's this concept of a lowest common denominator. We have two numbers, and um, you know there's a certain point at which you can't divide any lower between them. Um, and I kind of think of this as the lowest common. It's like it's like a the, the lowest common value denominator. At some point, you share share some kind of common value with someone, basically almost anybody that you'll come into contact with in a similar culture, like almost every single American, you're going you're gonna to share some kind of fundamental value that you guys can relate to, right? And um, so, so the, way, the way to connect to people is to get in connection with the, with the common values that you have and then work from there up to wherever the conclusion is that you want to come that you know whatever area it is that you want to focus on therapists are phenomenally amazing at this you know their their clients will uh come to them with some like harebrained crazy situation that's extremely stressful and it turns out that the issue that they're trying to solve has nothing to do with this like let's say they're fighting with their spouse or something it turns out a few months later they, they discover this has nothing to do with my spouse my spouse has done nothing wrong. I'm not responding to some perceived injustice from this other person. I'm dealing with some problem that is totally unresolved that was created by somebody else 15 years ago. Um, well, let me give so, you an example of just this approach. Uh, so this is how, um, like on, on energy and environmental issues, uh, with my work with Alex Epstein, like we'll approach mm-hmm. it, which is for, um, for like in our view, the the ultimate goal that we're striving for is to maximize human flourishing and there's an ideology that we think holds a completely different 
ultimate goal, which is to minimize human impact on the planet. And this is a really inhuman idea because we have to impact the planet and make it livable for human beings. But our view is that there are people, and particularly the leadership of the green movement, who do not value human flourishing. And so like, we're never going to persuade them because there's nothing to appeal to. But what we also believe is that most people, including most people who would call themselves green and who care about climate and everything, um, what they hold is a contradiction, that they actually value human flourishing, but they've accepted right. some ideas that are in tension with it. And so when, when we're discussing ideas, what we try to get is that fundamental clarity on, don't, don't you agree that our goal should be to, we want human flourishing and almost everybody will agree. And I think that's right in line with what you're saying that you're looking for that fundamental source of agreement. And you'll almost always find that there are exceptions because there are really people who don't value human yes. life. They don't value their lives. They don't value freedom in any sense. Um, but thankfully, thankfully, particularly in the West, I think that is a very, it's a very small minority, even if that minority exerts a certain kind of influence on the majority. Right. Definitely. Um, yes. Yeah, so I think that uh, part of the reason that um, actually Alex is somebody who helped me um, formulate this, this idea of this kind of lowest, lowest common value denominator. Um, kind of just not only him talking about it, but also just me just seeing the way that he has these kinds of conversations and the kind of the way that he structured his book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I mean, if you if you want to study effective communication in the form of a book, take a look at that book and kind of do a reverse outline yourself. That's what I did. Agreed. Uh, yeah. I mean, seriously, that is one of the most valuable things I've ever done in terms of becoming a professional communicator and kind of, and kind of figuring out, you know, you know, retracing the steps of some of your, uh, some of, some of your heroes, like, you know, find something specific that they did, somebody who impacted you greatly, find something specific that they did and figure out how they did it. You know, reverse engineer. That was a huge, that was a huge turning point for me. And so now, now actually part of my, part of my, uh, uh, the way I approach all problems, all, all of my professional problems, as I always, I always look for, what are a few sources of the absolute best thing uh, in, in this, you know, if, if I'm trying to, let's say I do a lot of web design. When I first started learning the principles of web design, I went out and said, I want the five best examples of web, web design I can find. And I want five, the five worst. And I want to figure out what these people were thinking and compare and contrast and try to get some abstract principles out of that, um, which is, I think actually is another interesting way of coming at is, is learning about abstract principles by inducing them from the stuff that's in the world that I want to replicate or not versus me going to design school. I have no education. Uh, I have no formal education and I've worked in, you know, I've been enough in the intellectual field for years now and doing a lot of really difficult stuff that usually uh, people go to school for. Uh, and part of what has able, enabled me to do a lot of that stuff is is um, reverse engineering people who do really, really great stuff. And that's actually also a really good model for communicating with other people is helping them, you know, if someone expresses a certain goal to you, you can, you can give them examples of things um, that have success, succeeded or failed in the world and they, and they start to really get it, you know, if you help them start to integrate those things. So that, um, this is so important. Uh, this idea of like reverse engineering. Um, every great discovery, I think, comes from that. Y you see something that's working and things that are not working, and then you're kind of pouring through a lot of confusion in order to figure out why it is. Like, you know, one of the things even Ayn Rand did when she was writing, uh, I think it was The Fountainhead, 
is she went and she outlined Hugo's uh, Les Miserables. How do you mm. write a grand scale novel? Like what, what is he doing that makes it work? Or if you think about, you know, like, I mean, obviously reverse engineering comes from you know, engineers are saying like, here, we have a working system or a working piece of software. And now we're going to figure out what are the principles that make it work. And what often happens, and certainly a lot of how I learned was like, I mean, I did literally the kinds of things you're talking about with Alex's work, with, uh, with Ayn Rand's, with Leonard Peikoff's, mm -hmm. with, with a lot of different people, people outside of objectivism, uh, people who were, I thought were completely wrong figuring out like all right how did they get there um mm -hmm. and w part of what though that takes a lot of work it's very hard you get confused all the time you don't know why yeah. exactly certain things are working and they're not working and so one aid is education right because what education does is people who have backwards engineered they then give you in the form of here's the final principles that you know, we're explain what works in the world. But the problem is that can help to a point, but ultimately you can't substitute going back through that process of learning from looking at what works and what doesn't in reality. Um, you can only get a head start from people handing you the principles. And uh, yeah. it's really helpful. Like I, I realized this, you know, because I, I also write fiction and I read, you know, all the advice on fiction and it was helpful to a point. I avoided certain errors. It gave me certain leads. But I hit a certain kind of ceiling until I realized that, okay, I actually just need to sit down and read or watch movies of master storytellers and for myself yes. work out how they're doing what they're doing. Absolutely. And I think that that's really crucial. And I think, I think that something that I, that I think would help a lot of people who are trying to communicate effectively. I think that it would be really helpful to kind of really chew on this idea and kind of, I think maybe do some like radical acceptance of that, this idea. People cannot, it is in the nature of human beings that we cannot use ideas that aren't really ours. We can't use them. So even if you even if you were to construct some like fabulous argument for somebody that uh, kind of pressured them into saying, oh, you know what, I have to accept this. It's, it's so airtight. I just have to. They're still not going to maybe use that information. And that to me is that's why I'm here. The whole goal for me is to is to enable people to use their minds in pursuit of their goals so they can get more of what they want and less of what they don't want. So to even have an audience, you know, to have somebody in your audience agree with you um, because you're you're you have become such a good polemical artist is not helpful to you or them. Well, this is one you of know? the biggest points that I make in my, in the early part of my persuasion mastery course. So I think there's a really wrong model. So you push back against the terminology of persuasion and I totally get why you do it. And what I think of is the problem is that we have a wrong model of persuasion. We think of persuasion as changing somebody's mind. And my view is right. that's impossible. Like people are sovereign in their own mind and you really have to take that seriously. But yep. what, and, and what part of what that gives rise to, it, uh, I think in, in marketing and business, it often gives rise to manipulative short-term tactics like, you know, let, scarcity. Let me, my, my, my online course that could have infinite scalability. Oh, I can only sell it to the first 100 people like that kind of yep. thing. 10 seats left. But for, Better people and for intellectuals, what often happens is it seems like it's a different approach, but I think it's really not, is what I call logical brute force, which is, 
I'm going to give you something plausible that I think you'll latch on to, like, you know, individual rights or don't initiate force against others. And then I'm going to like deduce in a way that you won't be able to poke holes in step by step until I get you to say, yes, we need to abolish the welfare state. And the idea is I'm creating an argument that nobody can disagree with. And Mm. what I say is that that does not work because even if they cannot spot a problem in your chain of reasoning, you're, you're making the point that they can't apply it, they can't use it in their life. And what's really going on, I think, is that you're leaving intact the full context of knowledge behind their view that, say, the welfare state is necessary. Their view of history, well, life was horrible before the welfare state, and it's been pretty good since. Their view of morality, we have an obligation to serve others and help others. Their, their kind of view of their personal experience, hey, I couldn't have gotten through uh, college without, you know, uh, help from the state or, you know, my parents, my mom was a single mom who couldn't get by without welfare. Their view of human nature, you know, people are short term, people uh, can make irrational decisions. So they have this whole rich context and you're leaving all that intact when you do this mm-hmm. kind of strong arming. And so that's why I talk about this idea of authentic persuasion, which is really just sharing how you came to see the world the way you did and right. in a way that connects with people and inspires them potentially to go on that same journey if they choose. 100%. I think I really do believe that. It's all about values. Steve Jobs said marketing is about values. When, when he first introduced the, the Think Different campaign, um, that's how he talked about it to the people at Apple. He said, you know, marketing is about values. We're not going to talk about bits and bytes anymore. We're going to talk about values. And I think that great communication is about values. And I don't mean that in that, what I mean is great communication is the communication that's about values. That's the stuff that's great to me. You know, definitely the stuff that moves me and motivates me the most is the stuff that is about my values because that's the stuff that I care about. And I think we really need to take that radically seriously and kind of you know, maybe reverse outline the way we do things and ask ourselves at each point, are we taking values seriously here? Is this about values? Is this about people going about their lives, you know? And one thing I also kind of want to add, there's a, there's a serious side effect to giving somebody an argument that they can't poke holes in, but they actually don't believe in. And that is they will actually, they, they, there is a tendency to let go of abstract thinking because they say, what is, okay, I'm, I'm convinced that there ought to be, you know, no, no welfare state, but my grandma survives off social security. So abstract ideas are stupid. I don't really need them. If I'm going to think about this thing and murders my grandma, why do I need this? Um, and so people tend to then eschew the whole thing is they say thinking about abstract ideas is, is inimical to my values. And, and that to me is a terrible, that's what happened to me is, uh, you know, grow, growing up in a, in a uh, I was homeschooled and really, really indoctrinated with religious ideas. And I knew that I that one example, the, the one example you told me about the phrase that you had to repeat over and over that, that to me was pretty strong. Oh yeah. So yeah. So we were talking about, um, we were talking about the fact that I was so highly motivated to read, to slog through kind of philosophy texts, even when I was a, a real beginner. But part of that was because I was trained to slog through religious texts before that. And the, the, the most notable one is that during, um, during prayers every night, we would have this thing where we'd have to say, Lord, have mercy 40 times 
and you sit there. Actually, we're all you know we're all standing there in front of our little icon corner, and we read "Lord Have Mercy" forty times, and we count it out on our fingers. And uh, so that kind of that kind of prepped me for what it's like to read and study and stuff. You know, so I actually had this really vehemently negative view of of abstract thinking and Western ideas in general, partly because of that, because all the guidance that I had was so insane and bizarre and had nothing to do with my life and had no practical value that to me, philosophy was just a game. You know, it's just a word game, but it has nothing to do with what kind of shoes am I going to buy yeah. or, you know, how do I choose a mate? Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't say it any better myself. Um, we're getting close to time. I wonder, uh, well, I'll ask it b two questions and you can answer one or both, whatever you feel like you have the most to say on. Um, anybody that you see doing things particularly well today that are good models and um, any other mistakes that we haven't talked about that you see, whether it's you know the liberty movement or objectivists in particular make that you really wish people were more aware of and, and were doing a better job of addressing? Yes, definitely. So the, for, the, for the first question, who, am I, who do I see who does something really well? I look outside the liberty movement, partly because um, I'm kind of biased and I have specialized knowledge here, so it's difficult for me to say. Um, but somebody who I think is an amazing intellectual is David Allen, the guy who wrote the book Getting Things Done. Right. He yeah, has a super, um, a super rational, super egoistic frame like really abstract framework for how to build a system of values and how to execute on them and how to really integrate everything and make sure you don't have any contradictions in your values and these are like like ethical principles that are pretty abstract stuff that i read i read for the first time when i read uh, um leonard peikoff's book on objectivism um <clears throat> but david allen manages to talk about values which is people want to get more out of life they they don't like feeling frustrated. They really strongly dislike having a bunch of stuff that they need to do, but their desk is cluttered and their mind is cluttered and their notes are all over the, all over the place. They really dislike being in that situation. So he is able to solve people's problems with abstract ideas. And he is not, what I find amazing and fascinating is his books don't start off with an introduction saying, here's the validation of egoism. They start off by saying, I bet you're really frustrated and have this terrible disorganization problems. Here's a bunch of ideas to help you with that. And he does, so he doesn't have to say you shouldn't have any contradictions among your values because it'll make you fail. He just says, you know, here are some of the frustrations I people see people with, and here's some techniques to get yourself around that. And then, and that to me is like, that's amazing that this guy has this whole framework that's based on an ethical system that I think is, you know, is, is awesome. And he never talks about philosophy. That's not true. He doesn't never talk about it. He rarely talks about philosophy. He talks about it only in so much as someone needs it in order to solve their problems more effectively. And that to me is a, such a great example. I wish we could have Liberty books that would talk about how to live a free life in a way that doesn't start out with, you know, a validation of individual rights or something. Um, so, you know, for the, for the layman. So that's, so that's the first thing, the first question. And the second question was, what are some like, some errors that I might that I might see yeah or areas for growth I mean it, uh, it doesn't have to come across as critical but just like you know I think there's a lot of really interesting 
ideas here. And so, you know, anywhere we can spot opportunities for mm-hmm. improvement, I, I think is always important to, to point out. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm actually known as being extremely harshly critical. Um, and sometimes people don't, they don't even like to work with me sometimes because I can be so, you know, I'm not, I'm not an angry person, but I'm just like basically super brutal when it comes to uh, picking things apart and finding problems. And uh, part, part of that is I'm not afraid of finding problems because it doesn't reflect on my character. And, um, and I, I, I try to treat people that way, you know, but I don't have a ton of skills around there. So it's, it's actually like the biggest area of feedback for me in my career is like, listen to people and figure out how to work with people better so that you don't insult them all the time, you know? So I, you know, so let's go ahead and alienate everybody in the Liberty movement right yes. now. Let's do it. They're all bad. This is, this is the time. <laughs> um, so whenever I speak, publicly, no, I should I try, say that I try not to get specific. Uh, no, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask you to do that. But, um, the, uh, uh, and uh, like, I totally uh, sympathize with this situation. I'm not by nature that way. I'm much more, I have to uh, force myself not to pull my punches and sort of, um, you know, be, go easy on people. And the big, the big inspiration for not going easy on people was the fact that the, you know, the people I learned from, I think were very similar to you, which it was, it was never personal, but it was always just blunt, straightforward. Like this isn't good. This isn't working for these reasons. And, you know, the implication was like, this is not about you. This is about, we want to create the best product and this isn't the best product. Yeah. Fascinatingly, I'm, I'm obsessed with, with really great communication and I haven't been able to figure it out in that area yet. So that actually is something that I'm really looking seriously at and working on really hard. But I will, I will say that, that there's one principle that I think is lost, that I think is just nowhere. And this is, in, in my world, I think about it as a principle of product development, and that is about checking your premises. Does, is your assumptions, you know, I, I know that you mentioned earlier, you're kind of, whenever you're writing something, you're asking yourself all the time, where's my audience coming from? What kind of problems might they have here? Check those premises. It's almost as if, imagine if you work at a, um, let's say you're a, uh, you um, work at enterprise and you, you know, we rent cars to people and you drive the car out and you take a look at the, the person renting the car and you say, oh, this person is, um, you know, six foot two and 300 pounds. So I'm going to set up the seat for this person. And you just like, look at them and choose settings for the seat. And you say, okay, this is perfect for you. And if you sit in it and you don't like it, that, well, you need to fix your posture, man. You know? So I think that stop blaming your audience for not loving your stuff take radical responsibility over and above. If you're the communicator, it's almost like the, like the relationship between an adult and a minor. Like if an adult and a minor get into a situation and the minor does something that's less than desirable, as an adult, you have to take radical responsibility because you're the person who's in, in charge of putting them in the environment that they're in, right? So you have to take a lot of responsibility. And, and a similar thing is, is, is when you are an expert in something, and you're guiding someone else, if they come to a wrong conclusion, either about you and your message, or they adopt something from you and it's wrong, take radical responsibility of that. And, you know, really start to blame yourself. That's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a negative way to put it, but um, I see a lot of people blaming their audience 
constantly and saying, well, people won't accept this because they have no attention span. They, they won't accept it because they've heard something else in school their entire lives. Well, here's the thing. If I, I, before I discovered objectivism, I was the worst loser in the world. I am a perfect candidate to be the worst person in society, and I'm not. And if I can come from that crap, then I can help my extremely intelligent, promising, engaged audience think more clearly about the issues that they care about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're putting it as, as blame yourself. And I know that's a little bit intentionally yeah. provocative. Um, but what it really is, it's empower yourself. Because insofar yeah. as you're blaming your audience, you are powerless. Insofar as it's just, well, that's the way they are. You can do nothing about it. And part of blaming yourself and taking radical responsibility means, means really recognizing that, man, there's nothing that can stop me if I get better. And that should yep. be, like, that's the flip side is that that should be super exciting and, and something that really like fuels you where it, and pushes you to always improve versus you know become a, a, a curmudgeon, um, which can be good as a, as a persuasive identity. People like curmudgeons, but it's, it's not exactly <laughs> psychologically desirable. Uh, yeah. No, I, th I, I love that. Um, well, Ezra, I know you haven't done a ton of like public, uh, you know, advocacy or anything but i think i think you're going to be a rock star because I, I you just you you have such good thinking about it and you i think you express it with a lot of clarity so i'm really looking forward to um everything that you're doing and any any way that people can get in touch with you if they're so inclined yeah sure you can send me an email ezra.drake at gmail.com um i've kind of i really appreciate the compliment that is insane to hear you're one of my like you know professional role models you know so even seeing myself, you know, on your podcast and stuff is just really awesome for me. Um, and I've been working in the shadows for a long time. Um, but there's going to come a time probably sooner rather than later where I have to come out and start creating my own stuff and, and, uh, and being a more direct advocate. So I, uh, hopefully we'll, you know, we'll see, we'll see more of that. And, uh, yeah, shoot me an email, ezra.drake at gmail.com. I'd love to talk. Um, I love to talk about these ideas. I love to help people. I actually responded to one of your emails. You see, how this all started is you sent an email to me and I responded and part of my response was, uh, it was an automated email. I actually sent a little critique of, of uh, some you know, marketing thing that I had going on. So you know, if anybody has any questions about marketing or communication or anything like that, I mean, hit me up. I, I live for this stuff. Yeah, and let that be a lesson. Uh, like. I mean, I'll make the point about me, but I think it's wider than that, which is like, I read every single email. I try to reply to all of them. Um, but particularly if they're, if they're interesting, uh, so, you know, <laughs> do your best, but I think it's true in the wider world. I think, um, you know, there's very little downside for reaching out to people that you find interesting and, and valuable mm. for, and, uh, and I mean, Steve jobs, <laughs> of course had like the best explanation. What was his uh, the way he put it, you know, uh, like he, you can look it up on YouTube, but he was pointing like most people don't ask for anything. That's why they don't get anything. Yeah. yeah he talked about like, if you push on the universe here, something's going to come out on the other side. And that's exactly what I was thinking of when I actually responded to you in that, in that email. Well, that's awesome. Ezra, good talking <laughs> to you. We'll have to do this again at some point. Absolutely, man. Talk soon.